are continuing in our series verse by verse through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to chapter 2, John 2, verse 1, and we'll pick up there in a moment. The first chapter of John's Gospel account, which we finished last week, sort of sets the stage for the entire narrative that follows. And if you glance back at chapter 1, you'll see basically the first half of that chapter is what we call the prologue or introduction. And it is one of the most stunning pieces of writing, I think, in the entire Bible. And it speaks about the Word becoming flesh, the light of the world stepping into the world. And then the second half of chapter 1, if you're looking down at it, you'll see that John uses it to sort of set the scene. He talks about the witness of John the Baptist, the calling of the first disciples, the public appearance of Jesus after essentially decades in obscurity. But now the stage is set. The characters are properly introduced and in their places, and it's time for the journey to begin. Uh, This morning, we step into chapter 2, and from this point forward, all the way through chapter 12 of his account, we see Jesus in action, uh, revealing who he is and performing a series of signs for the Jewish nation. In fact, chapters 2 through 12 are collectively known as the Book of Signs. And this morning, we start by reading about the first sign that Jesus performed. So I'll go ahead and invite uh, Leah, if you'd like to come up and read the verses for us this morning. Uh, She'll need that mic there. This is uh, picking up in chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was uh, there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? (laughs) Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding uh, from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had uh, drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana and Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we calm our hearts, our minds, our souls, the center of who we are, and just start by taking some deep breaths and inviting you into this place. Lord, we know that uh, life in Uh, The modern Western world has sped up to sort of a frenetic pace, and it's so easy for us to drown out your voice, to lose our awareness of your presence. 
as we run from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and sort of the uh, scramble uh, to achieve and accomplish and um, check things off of our to-do list. And so as we come into this place, Lord, we recognize it's a rare opportunity for us to slow down and to recalibrate our lives around you, that we actually need you, we need one another in community following after you, and we need times and places where we just stop and take a breath and uh, sit in your story, sit in your presence, Lord. And as we read about what you did at this wedding thousands of years ago, I pray that it would actually come to bear on this place, on this time, that we would see this as a window into who you are right now this morning in this room with us, that we would be reconnected to your presence, that we would actually, you would actually shift in our hearts and minds and our own doubt and skepticism, that you would shift what we think is possible in this world and in this time uh, because of you, because you're here and you change everything. So we say yes to you in this place, Jesus. We say yes to your truth over our own versions of the truth. Would you come and open our eyes? In Jesus' name, amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what follows in the opening verses of Scripture, at the very beginning of your Bible, are seven days of creative activity in which God inaugurates or starts creation and the human story. And John does something similar with his gospel account. He starts by saying, in the beginning uh, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And what follows in that prologue is uh, the language of light and life. This is Genesis language, sort of loaded with that imagery from the beginning, and it sets the stage for what follows. But what actually follows his prologue is a seven-day account of the beginning or the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, which can be reconstructed this way. These are the seven days. Day one of the ministry and narrative. Nick, I think we have a slide for this one. On day one, John testifies to the religious elite about Jesus. Hey, the light of the world is coming. Day two, John encounters Jesus in baptism, uh, where curiously the Spirit of God is once again hovering over the waters. Day three, John hands off two of his close disciples to Jesus. And then we read that the next day, day four, Andrew brings Peter to come and meet Jesus and become his disciple. Day five, the next day, Philip and Nathaniel join as disciples. Uh, day six, we actually don't read anything about. And then we get day seven, which is the account that Leah just read for us, the wedding at Cana, which starts with the words, on the third day. And all of this, what John's doing 
isn't immediately obvious to us and in the modern Western world. One, because if you're like me, I tend to sort of read quickly and miss a lot of the details. Sort of these numbered the next day and the next day and the next day wouldn't, doesn't usually mean anything to me. Uh, but also, we aren't Jewish. And Steve, well, you could be. I'm sorry, I'm making an assumption. For the most part, uh, we, we aren't Jewish and we aren't steeped in the Old Testament as they were. And so we don't immediately recognize that John's actually retelling the story of Genesis in a new and fresh way. He's, he's retelling the story, but now in terms of new creation. Original creation starts with God in the beginning and all things being made through him. It's the start of creation and humanity uh, with a seven-day narrative to frame all that happens. And the same is happening here. John starts with God and the Word in the beginning, but now he's speaking of new creation and new humanity. But again, he's using a seven-day sequence to frame this experience. His original audience that he's writing to already knows about original creation and uh, original humanity in a seven-day sequence, but now this is new creation, the birth of a new humanity, told in a way that is intentionally meant to mirror the original. And back in the original, if you remember that account, God does, has six days of ordering and creating and making, but then on the seventh day, we're told that God rested. And so if you're tracking with John, and it, this account is meant to mirror the original account, then his original audience probably already would have been thinking, oh, if this is mirroring the original, then on the seventh day, there should be some sort of rest or celebration. Uh, and in fact, there is. They find themselves at a wedding. But it's also telling in the Jewish context that John uses this phrase, on the third day. And in context, if you study uh, the, this chapter, it's actually hard to tell exactly what John is saying. In, in some scholars think that he's just saying, hey, it's the third day since Philip and Nathaniel joined. That was a day, then there's a day he doesn't talk about, and then you get to the third day. Uh, other people think he might be talking, referring to the fact that it's the third day of the week. We aren't totally sure what he means by that phrase. But if you go back and do a word study of the Old Testament, what you'll find is that this phrase, on the third day, was significant. It was often the day of God's deliverance for people in need. It was often the moment, you'll find that phrase, on the third day, then God steps in, rescues his people, and in the process he shows his glory and his presence and his generosity and his character and his love are put on display on the third day as he rescues his people. And here, uh, on the day of rest and celebration, on the seventh day of John's sequence, at a wedding of all places, the bride and groom are actually in need of deliverance. Now this part is a bit lost on us, because if my wife and I had run out of wine at our wedding, I probably would have said, that's okay, it's not a big deal, like, 
Uncle Randy's already had too much to drink. It's probably a great time to just cut everybody off. That's fine. But in this cultural context, weddings were a multi-day, whole community affair. Uh, everyone is there, basically everyone that you know, everyone you're related to, everyone you live with in community, uh, and your reputation is at stake through this process. Remember that in this time, place, and culture, they're living in a, a deeply communal, honor-shame society. It's very different from the one that we live in today. We live in a hyper-individualistic, hyper-transient society that is not honor-shame in the ancient sense. And so for us, uh, looking backward, we just have to remember first century Palestine was very different. And to make matters worse, the groom and his family were responsible for hosting and providing for this multi-day feast. And in their cultural context, it's actually a chance for the groom to prove to his bride and the community that he is able to provide. It's sort of a public statement that he's making to the family uh, that he's you know, marrying into, but also to the community around them. Saying in a sense, hey, I have what it takes to provide for my bride, to provide for her family, to provide for the community through this event. Uh, I'm old enough to be married. I, I, this is legitimate. We, we can get married and I can provide. Uh, and in fact, there was so much expectation around these events that if a groom seriously failed to provide in a grievous way, it would actually expose him to potential lawsuits. Like he could actually be taken to court for failing to provide if it was serious enough. And so it's in that context that they have this wedding. There's actually a lot riding on this culturally. And then comes the very last thing that you would want to hear as a groom on your wedding day in ancient Palestine. Oh my goodness, we've run out of wine. And it's far too early to have any excuses. This is a really big deal. This is a disaster in a sense. We are in need of deliverance. Jesus is there in attendance, uh, likely resting and delighting in God and others like you do on the seventh day. And then his mother catches wind of the catastrophe and quickly comes to Jesus and says, my goodness, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, there is more loaded in that simple response than we have time to unpack. But in the most basic sense, Jesus is saying, why are you coming to me? And what exactly are you asking me to do? Like, I, I'm just here enjoying the wedding with my friends and my disciples. What, what do you want? And if you catch sort of the, the tone, this sort of functions like a rebuke uh, in which Jesus sounds a bit annoyed and ultimately says no. What it sounds like he's saying is, hey, this isn't my issue Please don't involve me. That's what it looks like. 
But then comes Mary's curious response. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Which is hilarious to me. Somewhere in the mother-son interaction, which feels a bit tense for all of those who are standing around, Jesus seems to respond with rebuke, and Mary somehow interprets that to mean, oh yeah, he's in. Like, he's going to do it. I knew he would. All right, come around, gather around everyone. Just do whatever he tells you. And if I were one of the original disciples who was there, I would be really confused in that moment. <laughs> like, okay, I just missed something there. It must be, like, in the family. Like, I, I did not, I do not understand what just happened. But... Somehow, Mary has this faith or confidence that Jesus can fix this situation and that he's going to. Notice her faith. And then, he does. Jesus looks around and he sees a set of giant stone jars used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. And each one of these jars would have held 20 to 30 gallons of water. They're quite large. And then in classic style, Jesus asks the people there to be involved in the miracle. He says, go and fill these jars with water to the brim, which would not have been an easy task in this context. But it's reminiscent of the boy being asked to give his entire lunch of five loaves and two fish. Or the paralytic being told to take up his mat and begin to walk. Or Peter being told to go down to the lake and fish, catch a fish for the temple tax. So often, Jesus partners with us, asking us to give something, to contribute, to participate in the miracle that is about to occur. in our own way. So you have these people saying, uh, Lord, I cannot make myself walk, but I can pick up my mat in faith. Uh, Lord, I cannot pay the temple tax, but I can go down and catch a fish trusting that you're going to make this work out. Lord, I can't feed 5,000 people but I can give you my lunch and trust that you're not going to leave me hungry. God, I, I can't provide wine for all of these people, but, but I can go and fill these jars with water by faith and then trust that you are going to do the real miracle. And he does. No sooner have these jars been filled that the molecular composition of their contents changes. And by the time they've drawn some out and carried it to the master of the banquet, which is in itself an act of faith, like they just filled it with water and he's like, yeah, go take that to him. And you're like, really? Okay. As an act of faith, they carry it to him. And by the time they arrive, uh, it is wine. And not just any wine, but really good wine. The master of the banquet tastes it and says, in a sense, my goodness, why did you wait this long 
to bring out this wine. This is some of the best I've ever had. Like this is excellent wine. And then the curtain falls on the scene. And we're told that this was the first sign through which Jesus revealed his glory. Or, or the power and presence and nature of God. And his disciples believed in him. But notice that John calls them signs. This morning, we've started the book of signs. John has carefully selected seven signs which he highlights for us. But he doesn't call them miracles. He intentionally calls them signs. Why? Because a sign is pointing to something higher and deeper and more significant than itself. And it's possible to understand the miracle but misunderstand the sign. I get that Jesus turned water into wine, but I don't know what that means. John wants you and I to see the signs, to understand the signs, and to recognize that they point to something deeper. He wants you to grasp the deeper significance of what's happening. On the basic, sort of visible, physical, scientific plane, a miracle is taking place. Water is turning into wine. H2O is changing into C14H12O3. And, and we can look at that and say, well, that's, that's a miracle. That's take, that doesn't usually happen. It's a miracle. And, and when I look at this event through the lens of my sort of scientific, modern, Western, formerly atheist mind, that's typically all that I see is a miracle. Wow, that doesn't usually happen. Jesus just turned water into wine. Its molecular composition has changed. This is proof that Jesus is the divine creator. That the word has in fact become flesh. But notice that I am at risk of understanding the miracle but misunderstanding the sign. And this is a sign. A sign has implications that are deep and profound. Uh, Jesus could have turned water into beer at a bar mitzvah. And it would have been an equally great miracle, but it, but it wouldn't have been the sign that it was. Instead, he turns water into wine at a wedding, and that means something. He's not just performing a random magic trick. In context, he's actually affirming the goodness and beauty of marriage and even the couple that's getting married. 
uh, as you dig deeper beyond the face level miracle, it becomes clear he's actually rescuing them from shame as well. They went from facing years of potential embarrassment and ostracism to being the talk of the town. Instead of the guests wandering home early, scowling at their failure, questioning the legitimacy of their marriage, instead the guests wander home late, full of joy. Perhaps each one was carrying a wineskin over their shoulder, full of the best wine they'd ever tasted. This couple and this event would have been talked about for years to come and in the best possible way. So he rescues them from shame and he gives them glory instead. He honors and celebrates marriage and what it stands for. But we also see the generosity of God on display in this event. When they run out of wine, Jesus doesn't condemn He doesn't make snide remarks, and he doesn't produce a bottle or even a barrel of wine to cover their mistake. Instead, he produces up to 180 gallons of the best wine they've ever tasted. Abundantly more than they asked for. This is the God who feeds the 5,000 and still has leftovers. He is over the top generous. He's not stingy. You don't have have to worry about tomorrow that he won't provide for you. You belong to a generous God. But as we place this event in its biblical context, there's even more that comes to light. If you place this moment in the frame of the Old Testament, you'll notice that wine was actually a symbol of the Messianic age. And there was an expectation that when the eternal kingdom of God comes in full, it will start with a banquet where there will be an abundance of wine and especially new wine that no one has tasted before. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Amos, they're all clear on this point. This is the expectation. This is what will happen at the start of the eternal age. And so by turning water into wine at a wedding, Jesus is actually doing many different things at the same time. He is affirming the goodness and beauty of marriage He's performing a miracle, something that couldn't happen if he wasn't who he said he was. He's rescuing a couple from shame, giving them glory instead. He's demonstrating the stunning and ridiculous generosity of God over and above anything that they had asked or imagined. But he's also pointing forward to the age to come to another wedding and another wedding banquet. He's pointing forward to the time when heaven and earth will be wed together, when Jesus and his bride will at last be married in the full and complete sense. We will see him face to face, and we will sit down at the banquet table of the Lamb And there will be choice food and the finest of wines. 
Isaiah 25 says it this way. It says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, people of every tribe, tongue, and nation coming to Jesus there. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. This is our future. But in this moment, at a normal wedding in Cana, it's as if a bit of eternity is seeping through the veil and into our world. Of the billions of gallons of new wine that will be at the banquet table of the Lamb, it's as if suddenly a little bit spills over into our world. They get a, a sampling, a, a foretaste, a preview. It's as if the fog between heaven and earth suddenly grows thin and the atmosphere is transformed in this place. It's as if you can hear the heartbeat of eternity as it draws near. This is a preview of the very real banquet that we will sit down to in the age to come. But in order for us to get there, in order for Jesus to have his bride purified, washed clean, ready for marriage, in order for death itself to be swallowed up, first, Jesus has to die. And even as he celebrates, and an abundance of wine flows in Cana in Galilee, the writing is already on the wall. First, the Messiah must die. In fact, it's embedded right here in what Jesus says to his mother. They've run out of wine, she tells him. And his response, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And it's not obvious at first, but the next time Jesus calls his mother woman is at the end. As he's hanging on the cross. when his time has come. He will not speak this way again until he's there. You see, wine was a symbol of the age to come, of the wedding feast of the Lamb, where death would be swallowed up forever. But it was also a symbol of God's judgment against the evil of this age. 
And hence, before we can get to our wedding banquet, before we can stand pure and spotless and blameless before Jesus on that day, on our wedding day, at the dawn of that eternal age, before we can sit down and taste the finest of wines, first, the groom has to die. Jesus is the bridegroom who will provide for his bride through the sacrifice of his own life where he takes upon himself the full judgment against the evil of this age. Making us pure and spotless and blameless in the process. Freeing us up to no longer be wed to Satan and sin and death and hopelessness, but you're now freed up to be married or wed to another. To the one who has conquered those things. Now we are free to step into eternity because of what Jesus did on the cross. And one day we will sit down to a very real wedding banquet and enjoy the finest of wine, beyond anything we've ever experienced in this world. As we rejoice together at the start of that eternal age. Let's pray. Jesus, we... Thank you for this sign, Lord, that you performed thousands of years ago. And we thank you, Lord, that it was a sign. Of course, it was a miracle, but it was deeper than that. It was a sign of what is to come. It was a sign that you, right there in the midst of a wedding, you said essentially, I am the ultimate groom who will prepare the ultimate wedding banquet for the ultimate marriage, for the wedding of heaven and earth, for the wedding of Jesus and his bride, for the thing that God longs for most. So Lord, as we wade our way through the evil of this world, I pray that we would remember that that evil has already been judged at the cross, conquered there, to make this wedding banquet possible, Lord. He said, this is, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which we'll celebrate in a few minutes in communion. God opened up the way for us to be able to experience that place. So Lord, as we encounter evil in this world, I, I pray that we would remember the cross and the banquet which is to come. As we bump up against death in this world, Lord, I pray that we would remember the cross where you died and the banquet table where death will once and for all be swallowed up and done away with. From that banquet forward, there will be no more death for all eternity. Lord, as we deal with the loneliness of this age, 
pray that we'd remember that you are here with us and that one day we will see you face to face when we sit down at that banquet table. And we will gaze upon you that all of the loneliness and pain and, and heartache and chaos of this world will one day melt away. We're so quick to forget that in our busyness, in our distraction, in our pain. Lord, as we take a few moments now uh, to pray, to worship, our prayer is really simple. Our prayer is that you would make eternity real to us. So often our thoughts, our awareness, Lord, are 90, 95, 98, 99% on the visible, physical, temporal world that's in front of our eyes. And little of any of it is rooted in eternity. And yet, as you perform these signs, you, you weren't just transforming the world we live in. You, you were pointing forward. You're saying, I want you to be rooted in that place. I want your thoughts, your, your words, your life, your perspective, your awareness to be rooted in that place. So as we wait on you now, Lord, as we worship you now, I pray that eternity would grow in our hearts, that it would grow in our minds, that the grip and, and scream and call of this world would begin to fade, and that that place would begin to become as real as this place. that like some of the great saints of the past, Lord, that slowly perhaps that place would become more real to us than this place. Would you root us in what is yet to come? Would you root us in ultimate reality, Lord? So much of what we call reality will fade away as ultimate reality comes into view. Help us to live, to walk, to love in light of the reality that is to come. And Jesus, while we moan, Romans says, along with the rest of creation, waiting for, for that glory to be revealed, Lord, we do so with hope. We do so with excitement. And we believe, we say in faith, we will see you face to face one day we will sit at that table as we start eternity together. Come Holy Spirit, enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Make that real to us. In, in a world, in a culture, in a moment where that can feel so far away. We ask right now that, that part of heaven would come to bear on earth. Jesus' name.